Thank you, Willis. Love the names. I think we can say it every week. Scripture readers, y'all have, y'all are the real MVPs trying to get those words out. But uh, typically, we read also, uh, as we're walking through Judges, we read every verse, but this was 70-something verses, and so I kind of just made the call of, instead of 10 minutes of reading, I'm going to try my best to get us in the next 90 minutes. Nothing? Y'all awake this morning? I'm not going to preach for 90 minutes. Come on now. In the next few moments, that's always a safe bet. In the next few moments, I'm going to walk us through uh, the next 70 verses, if you will. But there's some things God, I think, has for us. And if you've been along the ride for our series throughout Judges, for a while now, we've been living in this tension of God. This is is kind of paraphrased, but imagine God saying, hey, I said I will never break my covenant. And I also said... If you compromise with these nations, I will not drive them out. That's the tension we've been living in. And this tension is going to play out in one of two ways. One, God's people are going to live in obedience. They're going to walk worthy of the calling, as Paul would say in Ephesians. They're going to walk worthy of their calling that God has given him. Or the second option, if we're not careful, it's this. We will allow culture to shape our practices and our view of what is right. And when we lead out in the tension here with the latter, we see that we can't live a life of compromises for long. We see we can't do that because partial obedience will begin to fade away. And there comes a point in your life where you're going to be all in on something. And if it's not a life that's been fully given back to God and living a life of obedience and love, following the way, the person of Jesus, then at some point, you're going to end up making enough compromises along the way that will lead, 100% truth in this, it will lead to a life of living in disobedience to the beauty of God's plan and his adventure he's called you into. And the result is this, God eventually will give you what you want. And that's the story of Judges, where he says, I will not drive them out. They will be thorns in your sides. You want that? You want the false idols? You want the things that leave you wanting more, never leave you fully satisfied? You want that? They're going to be thorns in your sides. Their gods will actually be a trap for you. And thus, we have this cycle of judges, a generation who's committed to the Lord that we see over and over, followed by a generation where complacency rules and ultimately leads to a generation that's marked by compromise. And as I say every week in this series, that's where we pick up this morning, only I warned you up front, it gets pretty dark, it gets gets pretty dark Today gets worse as we go. So the next headline, if you will, of this story is covered in the blood of a man who is driven by a ruthless passion to prove himself as a king following Gideon's death. So Gideon dies. We can see chapter 8. We see the end of his reign, his ruling, if you will, as judge. Appointed, we see some crazy, miraculous things. He's the, the youngest brother. He's the weakest tribe. And we see God do some miraculous things. And in verse 30, what we see takes place. It says this, after Gideon passes, the Israelites did not remember 
the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hand of the enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Gideon for all the good he had done for Israel. They didn't remember. They didn't remember. It's not that uh, it was that men in black black thing where the light shined and they just forgot. It's not that some sudden amnesia came over them where they just instantly couldn't remember. They chose. Surely they remembered all of the faithful works of the Lord. Right? Like surely they remembered the miraculous stories that their uh, forefathers had told them and that they just experienced. The victory that the Lord had just provided. But as the story goes... They didn't. They chose not to take into account Yahweh's past deliverance on their behalf. Their complacency turned yet to another compromise. And so I I think this serves every week. Again, I feel like we kind of find ourselves here in this cycle, but I think this serves as another good reminder that any good that comes from you or I is only by the grace of our loving Father and King Jesus. Like, God is the hero of his kingdom. In fact, the greatest, I think this is true, the greatest obstacle to God's kingdom advancing, this church-planting mindset, his glory filling the earth, the greatest obstacle to that is not any lack of his grace or kindness on his part. It's from the faithlessness of his own people. And yet he still chooses to use broken and busted people like you and I to advance his glory, for his glory and for our good. So I think there's a clear warning here for anyone that finds himself in any type of leadership. Like just practical advice here. If you find yourself in any form of leadership, I said this a few weeks ago, we are all glory-hungry people. Like we want the glory at the root of everything, I can tell you and stand before you as your pastor who tries to, to serve in, in all humility, there's still something wretched in my heart, just like you, that I have to work through and fight through. We're all glory hungry. There's always going to be a temptation for us to exchange God's divine plan for our own personal gain. Remember, it's possible to say that God is king, but to live like you're king. We've seen that the last few weeks. Now, I don't want to keep picking on Gideon here because he did some really cool things, but at the same time, he was a flawless or a, a sinful judge full of flaws just like us. But family, we're about to see the consequences of his compromise. At the end of his life, we're going to see that there are deep, terrible, wretched consequences to the, con- to the compromise that he made, and I want us to see this. Be very clear. Remember, the whole point of a judge was to what? To turn people from unfaithfulness back to the one true and faithful God. That's why God appointed judges. The whole point was that they would take people from living unfaithful lives and the judge would be appointed, equipped, empowered by God's spirit to lead people back to the one. But Gideon, at the end of his life, he begins to make the compromise in his own heart. The victory belongs to Yahweh. Now hear me on this. Again, back to any type of leadership here. Gideon knows that. Gideon knows that the victory belongs to Yahweh, to God, the Lord. He knows that. 
Like he's the dude that went to church his whole life. He's the one that knew the right answers in Sunday school. Matter of fact, he even states, the Lord will rule over you. When they're looking at him and trying to say, be our king, he says, but it's the Lord that will rule over you. He knew the right answer right here. And here's the thing, as he followed his own heart, however, we see this huge disconnect of what he knew about God and the motives of his own heart. His actions spoke louder than what he knew at that point. Gideon knew that his insane victory he just accomplished was from the Lord, from the sword of the Lord. But in his heart, hear me, the whispers of pride and self-glory said it came from your sword, Gideon. Look at what you've done now. And his dependence on the Lord at that time went from his kingdom come, God's kingdom come, thy kingdom come, to now Hey, Gideon's kingdom come. Look at me. Look at what I've done. And in doing that, at the end of his life, Gideon leaves, leads them into further unfaithfulness, further disobedience. Like, I think it's, it's safe to say Gideon's problem was that he thrived not on his dependence on God leading him. I think he thrived and lived for those moments when people looked to him for guidance. There's a big difference. Some people thrive to just be like, God, do incredible, miraculous things in this moment, and it's all glory to you. And then other people are like, do that. But people, look what I've done. And I think that's what Gideon's problem was. He thrived not on his dependence on God, but on actual, the reality of people looked to Gideon for their dependence. People needed Gideon. I wonder how many of us would admit this. In our mind, we know God is king. But in our heart and how we live, we want people to look to us for guidance. We want people to look to us for answers. I think it's even safe to say we probably want people to look to us for salvation. We need to be needed. Some of y'all hear that and you're like, man, that's not me. But functionally, how do you live? We need to be needed, almost, hear me on this, as if we've become codependent on everyone around us, like we feel this need to be needed, and when we're needed, we feel great. Look at, look at what I can do for you. Oh, I know it's all from God's grace and for his glory, but look what I can do for you. We feel great when we're needed, and when we're not, somebody's going to catch the wrath of you not being needed. How dare they look, not look to me for guidance and answers? They don't know what I've done for them? How dare my spouse actually be okay with going to the Lord and not to me? Like, I know this sounds foolish. This sounds like we would never say it, but our actions speak louder than what we actually believe in our heart. Like there's this deep desire in each of us. We want to be needed. And when we're not needed, who's going to catch the brunt of the, your wrath? Because if you want something, you're going to get it. How dare my kids grow in their in independence and actually become mature? They need me. I put the food on that table. 
It's almost as if Gideon demanded that his people need him. But unlike Gideon, there's a better judge. Jesus, the Son of God, hear me, had every right to demand his position as king. If anybody had any right to say, look what I've done, it's Jesus. And yet Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, actually resists the temptation from Satan to become all-powerful over all the kingdoms. He resisted that. He's also, in Mark chapter 10, the one that said he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Keller says this, he's ransomed us from our self-honoring reactions to success and our self-hating responses to failure. He used his position as the Son of God to give us freedom from needing respect or being crushed by the lack of it. We'll read that last part one more time. He used, the Son of God used his position to give you, Sean, you, Jared, you, Peyton, you, Josh, you, Slayton, to give you freedom from needing respect or being crushed by the lack of it. That's what the Son of God did for you. Used his position to give you freedom from needing, being codependent on other people. He is the one who should look, that we should look to as the better judge, the one true king. So just before we jump into anything else, I want you to ask these questions. Whose kingdom are you living for? Whose kingdom are you living for? Like, are you more concerned with the approval of man and your own glory than you are living just an ordinary, faithful life that points other to the true hero, Jesus? Whose savior are you trying to be is the next question. Whose kingdom are you living for and whose savior are you trying to be? Children, spouse, co-worker. I don't know who it is, but whose savior are you trying to be? May we not make the compromise as Gideon did. So chapter 9, complacency turns into compromise. Only this time, there's no more tension. I told you, that's how I started this. Like we were living in this tension. Here, though, there's no more tension in the story. The Israelites, they've walked headlong into complete and utter destruction. And hear me on this. It's not even from the enemies outside of them. It's now from within. And what do we see happen here? Well, God gives them over to what they truly desire. So let's, let's keep moving. The narrator tells us Gideon had just a few wives, just a few sons. False. He had many wives, and he had 70 sons. Also had a son from a concubine who gave him a son named Abimelech. Abimelech means my father is king. More on this shortly. Don't forget that. My father is king. Everyone forgets here at the point in this story, everyone forgets that the Lord, what the Lord had done, and they start doing what is right in their own eyes. Again, the cycle happens, but now the narrator gives us a glimpse into actually how does that play out. So, so now what? Gideon's dead. Well, with 70 sons from the former self-appointed judge, Gideon turned king. Surely one of his 70 boys are going to step up. Like if he is the king, and they're not waiting on another judge. If he's the king, they're moving ahead saying, hey, who's, who's going to do this? Surely one of his 70 boys 
will step in. But the people begin to talk and they ask, hey, who's going to be our next leader? Reminder here, every other judge is called by God without seeking the role. Every other judge is appointed from God at the right time without seeking the role. But the people aren't concerned with what God would have. And now enter Abimelech, the illegitimate son who was set to inherit nothing. He's from the concubine. Not even, he, he's a half-brother, if you will. This half-brother, he shows up on the scene. I'm, I'm going to, this is, this is the Weaver paraphrase here because there's a lot. The half-brother, he shows up on the scene. He begins to make his own path. And as we continue on here, what we see is a power-hungry man who feels that if he's to get anything out of life, then he's going to have to get it for himself. Like, that's, that's his life story, if you will, Abimelech. And he's determined to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. Abimelech doesn't want to be the appointed judge. Hear me on this. He actually wants to be the king. Did you hear that? Abimelech wants to be the king. His father is Gideon. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The seeds of Gideon at this point, the seeds of his compromise now come to full blossom in the life of his son. And there's consequences to your sin. Sometimes generational consequences of the sin that we find ourselves in. So let's see what happens. Abimelech returns to the people in Shechem. Okay, he goes home to mom. Dad's dead, 70 half-brothers. Who's going to step in? Abimelech turns home, determined to build his own kingdom. His strategy, though, was carefully planned out, and it was actually quite sad. He comes home, and he gains all of mom's support. His only way into lording over, to, to being the king, if you will, was through Gideon. So he knows he's got to come home. He's got to go to mom, because that's his one way in to his half-brothers, because he deserves none of it. He's got no kinship here. And he looks at the people, and he says, hey, why shouldn't I be king? My dad had 70 sons. Look around. If they can't all agree on things, how are we going to know who's in charge? What a mess we're going to be in. Isn't it better if I'm just your man? Like, if we just had one guy, I'll be that guy for you. Why should we have all of these weak men pretend? All of these weak men who haven't stepped up. Why haven't they stepped up to the plate? Here I am. They're just pretending to be leaders. We don't want to be confused. So here I am. And then you know what the people responded? You're right. You should be the man. Why didn't we think of this? And they don't just agree, actually. They, they start throwing money at him. Mind you, if you read through the story, I encourage you to always go back and, and read the story verse by verse, but they're throwing money that came from a shrine, a shrine where they worshipped Baal instead of Yahweh. So they take this blood money, if you will, and now start throwing it at this self-appointed king that says, hey, let me be the dude. So Abimelech steps into the job. He takes the money, of course, they're, they're proud of what I'm doing. And he takes this blood money and he hires out, Scripture says, worthless and reckless men to follow him. 
I think it's interesting that he hired out. He couldn't even convince worthless and reckless men to follow him. He took blood money and said, hey, I'll pay you. Follow me. I need some dudes. Notice his rise to power here is not on the basis of obedience to God. It's through the funds of blood money from false gods. In his first order of business as king, self-appointed, congregant-approved, if you will, is to do what? Make sure nobody challenges him in his kingship. He wants to protect his throne. So the cold-hearted Abimelech, he sets out to do what? I mean, a turn of events here. Very interesting, sad manipulations involved. Like, this isn't just a story. Like, I've read this story a lot of times, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, he murdered 70 of his brothers. Cold-blooded murdered 70 of his half-brothers. Like, Gideon, his dad, killed Israelites. We saw that last week. I told you, the cycle gets worse and worse. They're fighting. They're trying to push out the Canaanites, and over time, you know, it gets worse and worse. Gideon kills Israelites, some of his own family tribe, if you will. Now, Gideon, or uh, Abimelech, murders his own family. Murders his brothers one at a time. This isn't a quick slaughter of unsuspecting victims. Like, this isn't just a, I'm going to fly a drone and knock them out. Like, this is a thought-out process that's pretty vigorous and pretty dark. But not only that, I, I just I see so many things as I, I read through this. He does this at the stone where his father's from where Gideon's actually from. The same stone that was used to make sacrifices to Yahweh, now a calculated, cold-blooded act of murder is taking place. I think the narrator puts that in there for, for good reason, not just speculation, but good reason. The one stone that his father offered sacrifices to God, now one at a time, Historians talk about this. This isn't like a, a huge altar. This is a one at a time. His brothers, half-brothers, are watching the brother before them be murdered. I think we can learn something very practical here. Lots of things that we can learn, but very practical. It's, given, it's a given that there will be leaders in our lives. You're going to have somebody leading you at all times. And how we get them matters. Like how they lead you matters and how they get to that position matters. Can I just tell you, God's not interested in the best dressed. He's not interested in the well-spoken, well-mannered, smooth talker. He's not interested in the popularity or good humor. Honestly, it's not even about an academic intelligence or whatever else that you see and you think, ooh, and ah, that person has a great sense of leadership. Be cautious to the one who says you need me. God seeks men and women of character, not stature. He seeks men and women of character. Be cautious to the one who shows up on the scene and says, I'm your guy, you need me. How do they love and serve their family? Are they more concerned with advancing God's kingdom or, or their own? Are they marked with humility and love? It matters how you get there. So just practical advice. Put people in leadership. How do, how do you get there? Are they marked with humility or are they marked with pride? Self-glory or the glory of God? It matters the people you put there. 
So as Abimelech is murdering his brothers, the narrator lets us in on a bit of a problem. I know there's going to be some interesting conversations with our kids. I'm going to explain a lot of this. Murder and all sorts of stuff. Welcome to Grace Church Alito. Abimelech is murdering his brothers. The narrator, he lets us in on this little bit of a problem. In verse 7, the youngest of all the brothers, Jotham, he gets away. The youngest brother escapes. Why no more of them escape? I don't know. God's sovereign and in control. 69 of them slaughtered. One escapes. Interestingly, I think this is why. Jotham, you know what his name means? Yahweh is perfect and blameless. He was named years before this event, and his name means Yahweh is perfect and blameless. Abimelech, my father, is king. Jotham escapes, probably witnesses the brutal murder of many of his brothers, and he can't go back home. So what does he do? He receives this message from the Lord, if you will, this, this insane, you know, we would talk about, hey, what would you do with 20 seconds of insane courage? Well, he takes this 20 second in, uh, seconds of insane courage, and he goes up to the mountainside, and he delivers a prophetic warning to the people. So out of extreme courage, he shares a fable in order to grab their attention. He draws them in. All of the people are listening, and he cries out, everyone should listen to me. So that our God, Yahweh, will listen to you. He doesn't say, I'm your man, I'm your leader. He said, you should listen to what I have to say because this is from the Lord so that God, Yahweh, will listen to you. And he goes on and he tells this story. And the story goes like this. One day, a grove of trees, they were looking for a new king. They got together. They decided that an olive tree should be their king. And they said to the olive tree, you're our king. But the olive tree replied, I can't be your king. I'm too busy producing olives. That's what I do. If I don't produce, then there's no oil for my olives. So they looked around these trees, and they saw a fig tree. They said to the fig tree, you're our king. And the fig tree looked at them and replied, I don't want to be your king. I got to have to stop producing figs just to be in charge. That's not worth it to me. So the trees continue to look around, and they, they see the grapevine, and they say, you're our king. But the grapevine Grapevine looked at them and said, I won't be your king. I've already got important things to do. I make grapes for wine that brings cheer. So the trees look around and they finally see, they have to look down, they see a thorn bush. Won't you be our king, thorn bush? What's the thorn bush say? Of course. Of course I'll be your king. In fact, if you support me, why don't you just come and rest under the safety of my thorns. If you don't want to support me, then I, I suggest you stay where you are. And I'm, I'm going to send fire to destroy you and whatever trees are left standing there without me. A few things to, to note. The message from God was a fable. He shares this. It's obvious here, it's not just that they have active acted foolishly in choosing Abimelech as king. They have acted unfaithfully. And the thorn bush earlier in Judges, God says, I will not drive them out. They will be thorns in your sides. Their gods will be a trap for them. You ever stepped in a briar? I hate thorn bushes. 
not because of the story, because they hurt. I've got snake boots when I go out to the ranch. It doesn't matter what kind of boots. I could wear a, a full body suit of neoprene protection, and a thorn bush is going to still stick to me. And I, when I try to pull it off, it's going to now stick to my fingers. It's going to prick my fingers, and it's going to hurt. There's just enough venom or poison or whatever it is in those things that it hurts. And how they grow together, you ever see a thorn bush that grows tall? The tallest thorn bush I've ever seen personally is maybe, it could be that, maybe a half inch in diameter. It gets kind of strong, but after about two foot, what does it do? Just, it starts going like this. And then if it finds a tree, it might go up. The thorn bush makes this remarkable claim that other trees can come and take refuge under his shade. Idols overpromise and underdeliver. They will be a trap and they will be thorns in your side. Like hear, hear this. Say it every week. Don't bow down to something that would not give its life up for you. Why? Why bow down to something that would never give its life up to, his life up to you? There's a better judge. So Jotham, he basically ends it with before, uh, ends it, Jotham basically ends it with this before he escapes. He says, I hope you both, I hope both you and Abimelech get what you all deserve. He looks at his people and he says, or their people, his family members, his tribe, and he says, I hope you get what you all deserve. You burned by him and he burned by you. Like we see the rest of the chapter. We'll work through it quickly. Just how true his words are were no longer a fable, but a true real-life story of God's faithful and just punishment on unfaithful people. Abimelech, the self-appointed warlord, is going to rule and lord over his people instead of serving as a faithful judge. And lastly, on his speech, unlike Abimelech, who's driven entirely by selfish gain, look at me, look what I can do for you, Jotham seems to have the best interest of people in his heart. The question isn't, will God rule justly and faithful? The question is, is will they listen? He's pointing them to the faithful judge, to the one who's never left him, to Yahweh. Abimelech's pointing them to himself. Look what I'm going to do with you. And Jotham, in like this last-minute ditch effort, says, hey, you're about to get what's coming to you, but you can listen to me. You can listen to the Lord. You can go back to Yahweh. Don't go to the thorn bush. Is God speaking to you, and you're not listening to him? Just a simple question. Is there something in your life that God is speaking to you out of his grace and kindness? He's drawing you into something, but you're not listening. Unfortunately, the people didn't listen to Jotham. They ignored his warning, and as the story plays out, Abimelech destroys anything or anyone who gets in the way with more power, just as the thorn bush did in the story, it plays out. But I don't want us to miss something beautiful in all of the darkness, because God, I think we could read this sometimes, He's, his name's only mentioned one time, and it's not even Yahweh, it's Lord, it's Lord, or God, that's mentioned here in just a second. We can look at this and think, man, where was God in the midst of all the evil that took place? 
Again, from chapter 8, verse 34, to chapter 10, verse 6, Yahweh is only mentioned one time. Where is he at? Like in this time, we see a picture of a culture who wants nothing more than to push God out. Like, Don't you see that with me? If he's only mentioned one time, this culture wants nothing more. Jotham says, come back to Yahweh, and Abimelech says, come to me. Culture wants nothing more than to push God out of the picture entirely. And we can look at that and think, man, is God absent in all of this mess? Jotham escapes. He hides in fear. Their hope is in a terrible leader now. But in all of this, please hear me on this, the narrator lets us into a beautiful truth about God and his sovereignty. A little glimpse about what God was doing behind the scenes. Verse 23 and 24, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. They treated Abimelech deceitfully so that the crime against the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come to justice and their blood would be avenged on their brother Abimelech who killed them and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him kill his brothers. Now to be very clear, God is not evil. He's not the source of evil. He didn't make this spirit evil. Instead, he made the evil spirit serve his own good and purpose of punishing evil men for the evil that they had done. It's a big difference. God's not evil. He didn't create evil. But as Paul says in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. God was in control through it all, even when it doesn't seem like it is. All things have been created through him and for him. He holds all things together. So even as evil creeps in in the garden, man-made selfish desires, he holds all things together so even in the darkness that is surrounding his own people, he can work all things together. And as it goes from bad to worse, God is in firm control of all of the affairs. Whether they acknowledge, the Israelites acknowledge it or not, here's what I mean. Towards the end of Abimelech's three-year reign, we see, which is interesting that the narrator tells us he only reigns for three years. It's kind of like, ha, here's this self-appointed guy. Uh, He only was here for three years. But then we get to see it all play out. Towards the end of his three-year reign, the Israelites, they grow tired and weary of his leadership. He's lording over them. A bully, the raging fire, comes to full fruition. Remember the fable. You're going to burn by him and by yourself. Gael, son of Ebed, comes into the scene. He moves into Shechem, and Abimelech's people start to put their confidence in this new leader, Gael. Abimelech, he gets angry. So what does he do? A person who's greedy and wants glory, he fights Gael and he conquers Shechem. And in this, he killed his own people, once again, at a place where Joshua had once worshipped. And now he stands over the barren land and scatters salt over it so its fields can no longer grow crops. This guy is doing everything in his power that he can do to say, I'm it. I am the man. And from here, the Shechemites, they escape. They go to the Tower of Refuge. He's turned on his own people. 
All of his paid workers are following him now. The Shechemites, they escape. They go to the tower for refuge. Abimelech ain't having it. He leads his men to burn it down. The entire town, about a thousand men, women, and children died. Burned them down, his own people. Remember the fable, the raging fire continues. Next up, he marches to, uh, he marches his men to Thebes. And his goal is to make them suffer the same fate. It's here that we see many of the townspeople. They locked themselves in the, t- the strong tower. They climb up to the top. They're like, well, it didn't work for them. Maybe it'll work for us. They go to the top of the tower. Abimelech is prepared to do the same thing. He cut, cut down some limbs, and he was just about to light the tower on, fi- on fire and burn it down just like he did before. But something happens. I love this. An unnamed woman was up on the roof. Now, I don't know what kind of stature she is, but I'm assuming she's worked with her hands before because it says she picked up this huge, heavy millstone from the top. Now, this isn't like a six-foot privacy fence, not even an eight-foot or ten-foot. I mean, we're talking about 30 feet in the air. You can go back and look at the minimum. This lady, unnamed, is up on top, She picks up a millstone from the top, drops it with precise aiming ability and drops it on his head. And still alive, Abimelech turns to one of his men. He's only concerned about his fortune. He's only concerned about his glory and reputation. And he says to his servant, hey, go ahead and just put me out of my misery. I'd rather look like I died in a fierce battle than by a woman. Judges 9, 56 and 57. In this way, God brought back Abimelech's evil. The evil that Abimelech had done to his father when he killed his 70 brothers, God also brought back to me, to the men of Shechem, all their evil. So the curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came upon them. You want to know how in the world God is in control of all this? He's involved in and through it all like this. Who had Gael move in out of nowhere and start testing Abimelech's kingship? Sovereign king, God. What was the result of that? Somebody's testing, going after Abimelech's power. What does he do? Well, Abimelech wanted more. Give me my power I deserve. God allows Abimelech such ease with which he conquers the best. Like if you go through this story, you can see his sovereignty play out. And here's why I think it was with such ease. So he'd be careless and just keep pursuing men and women and children and knocking them out, killing them. How about this one? The inspiration and the empowerment of the unnamed woman who dropped the millstone from the tower. Who gave her that courage? Spirit of the Lord. Or how about the stone being on the tower? Large enough, like did the masons just forget to bring down the, when they were building this rock tower, they just forget that one rock up top? Like that seems little in minute detail. Who put it there? Who makes the rocks cry out? Who makes the wind blow? Who can calm the wind in the storming waves of a sea? Or how about the guidance from 30 plus feet from the air of a millstone from an unnamed woman who drops it on Abimelech's head? God sovereignly, hear me, deals with his people in a way that is faithful and just because he is faithful and just, which means... God provides justice and he repays evil. 
God makes sure that unrepentant people are going to face a payday someday for their evil, de- evil deeds. Like there's a lo- larger story at play. Here's where the gospel can be good news to us. Even in the midst of all of the darkness that we find ourselves, that we look around, God honored justice in this time. He did. He said, I would do this. He used Jotham and gave a clear fable example. He honored justice in this time. Not only then, but hear me this morning, he later provided justice and created a way of escape for all evildoers by sending his son to take sin upon himself at the cross. One theologian describes this as God breaking the vicious cycle of violence by absorbing it on himself. So God's vengeance then not only delivers you, you and I from experiencing true vengeance, but now makes it possible for me not to take vengeance on others when I'm growing angry. So to my non-believers today, deal with your own evil by receiving the redemption and reconciliation that God has provided for you. Hear that as good news for you this morning. You will not get away with your wrongdoing, though. None of us will. Allow Jesus to take the wrath that you deserve. And to my believers today, let God deal with the evil of others against you. Don't retaliate and set out for revenge. Trust that God is faithful and just, and others will not get away with their wrongdoing on you. And so in closing, I find it interesting as the time passes Commitment turns to complacency, which leads to total compromise. And now we see God. He appoints Tola as judge in chapter 10, the first five verses. I promise I'm closing. Not a lot is said about this new judge. Abimelech, dead on the floor, millstone, rocked his world, literally. Not a lot is said about the next judge just like Shamgar back in chapter 3. But something interesting to know here. Shamgar was delivering people from the enemies, the Canaanites. And for the first time in this cyclical pattern, the next judge, Tola, you know who he's, he's delivering his people from? Themselves. Man, The series of the cyclical pattern, when I say it gets worse and worse, for the first time now, a judge is appointed. Can you imagine the Lord just looking down and thinking, I once saved you from all of your enemies, and now I'm saving you from yourself. Tola is appointed. Timothy Keller says the church's greatest problem is the church. The church's greatest problem is our own self. One author this week as I was reading, it's easy to point the finger to those outside the church. The greatest threat to the church, however, is not ISIS. It's not planned parenthood. It isn't Hollywood. It's not the atheist professors who ruin the faith of our sweet college freshmen. The greatest enemies are not secular politicians and Supreme Court judges. If we want to know the worst enemy of the church, the one that apart from sustaining the grace of God could eternally destroy us, then we must look in the mirror. 
Doing so will not be easy. It's super uncomfortable. We must take a long look into our own souls. And our indwelling sin might catch our melanoma while it's early. And if it does, praise God, we have the gospel for our own healing. Like, it's, it's hard to boast in ourselves when we know just how ugly our sin really is and how costly our redemption was. Father, would you this morning draw near to our hearts? Lord, in the, in the heaviness of this story, innocent men, women, and children lose their lives. People rebel from your goodness. They turn their face from you. They look inside at themselves and say, look what I can do. Look what I have done. I've got this. I can do this. Holy Spirit, would this be a gentle or stern warning? Is there something that you're trying to say to us that we refuse to hear? Is there another kingdom, success, power, money, sex, is there another kingdom that we've bowed down to that has taken the place on the throne of our hearts and said, we want this more than we want you? It's not just that we struggle and wrestle with sin. How are you? Man, I'm just really struggling with this sin. This life that we live by the power of the Spirit is that we would make war on sin. The sin that separates us from you. The ugliness of that sin that says, I choose myself and I choose whatever else except you Jesus, in your saving grace, the only one who's never left us, the only one that will never forsake us, the only one when all else fails and we can barely lift our head, you stooped down to us. And through your grace and your love and your mercy, you looked at us and you said, I still love you. Remember what I've done for you. Holy Spirit, would we bow to no other God? The thorn bushes in our life, would you pour gasoline on them today? Would you, your Holy Spirit, light those thorn bushes on fire and rid ourselves from the things that poke and wrap us up? and entangle us and keep us from experiencing the joy of this beautiful grand adventure that you've called us on to. We wish to see you this morning do what only you can do. In the power of the Holy Spirit, would you go and fill this place and do what only you can do this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.